But uh, yeah, it's supposed to be pretty good. So I'm trying to learn psychopharmacology, and it's a, not an easy thing. It's very I, complicated. It is very complicated. I it can't is. keep up with it because I'm not seeing people anymore. No. But I have an interest. I actually have an interesting psychopharmacology story. You do? Yeah. What's your psychopharmacology story? Well, um, I used to work at Logansport State Psychiatric Hospital. Oh. And um, in, in the middle of Podunk, Indiana. Surra- again, surrounded All of by Indiana, other than Gary, and maybe Indianapolis or Podunk. That and, doesn't and tell cornfields. any. It doesn't yeah. tell anybody anything. It could be anywhere in Indiana outside of Gary and Indianapolis. <laughs> so where's Podunk, Indiana? So Podunk, Indiana is most of Indiana. It is about an hour, well, forty-five minutes north of Indianapolis, mm. um, and it's a state psychiatric hospital that started was started um, up here, very much like the ridges in the early eighteen hundreds. Is it near Fort Wayne? No, it's Center southwest. Of the state. Oh, southwest. southwest. Okay, yeah. southwest of Fort Wayne. So, um, so anyway, yeah. So I was a behavior consultant for I. There were it was a, what we called at the time MRDD unit, which is now developmentally delayed. Sure. So we had forty seven patients um, with very low limited IQs mm. um, with severe and persistent mental illness, and so this is after the the big. Um, the drain in the 1980s of most of the state psychiatric hospitals. A topic of much discussion in the worlds I live in. I bet. I yes. bet. I have big opinions about this. I mean, but but I'll, Most people in behavioral health do. I uh, Yeah. Um, so these were, the, see, these were the patients that were still left after the floodgates had opened in the 80s. Um, and so we had 47 patients, um, and our listeners can't see it, but in the size of about Dr. Frederick's office, I don't know, is it's it an old dorm roof. Yeah, yeah, it's about right. It's an old dorm room. So our unit was about two, twice the size of this room. Where forty and, and how many people? Forty-seven in a space twice as big. Girl Scouts honor. Crazy. Plus, plus there were little rooms off to the side, but this was like the main. That's area. crazy. It literally was crazy, and it would drive you crazy even if you didn't have severe and persistent mental illness. Yes. Um. So my story is: so every morning at eight a.m., we had the psychiatrist, Dr. Lozano, leading the team of um. And we would go through like five or six of our patient cases for that day. And it consisted of the psychiatrist, the primary care physician, uh, the pharmacist, the pharmacy students from awesome Butler University, the behavior consultant, the RNs, the psych techs, the the secretary. Um, If the patient was able to come, the patient, and then if the patient's family were able to come, um, them as well. And um, I tell the students this, and this was my interest in research about interprofessional teams. You'll appreciate this because mm-hmm. you like teams too. I do. Um, and so we were all doing like the team thing, and I just did air quotes. Like the the every the, every morning was started out with a team consult about the patient. And uh, what I realized over time was, you know, what would happen is if a student or a student a patient had a meltdown, we literally had a rubber room, what we called a rubber mm-hmm. room. Now, JCO accreditation, hospital accreditations, we couldn't lock the room. And one one day I was working a three to eleven shift, and I was walking down the hallway, and I could hear the screams, and I thought, okay, it's going to be one of those days, because you know, granted, these are some pretty 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 ill patients that we had, and you know, psychosis was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I walked down the hallway, and our psych attendants were rotating in and out of a hospital, and one of our stu- one of our patients was really, really, really sick. And so what would happen? My job was as a behavior consultant is they would somebody would get out of control. They would call me, and if I couldn't verbally deescalate the patient, then I would have to call the psychiatrist on duty. They come and do a PRN, um, oftentimes a pretty heavy hitting psychotropic like Haldol or. PRN as needed. Thank so, you, a, so a medication that you're giving for just that moment, that that time. 
Yeah. 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 And, and they're effective, but the side effects are awful. They're awful um, for some of them. And, for some of them, it's true. And um, so what would happen is with some of the, the PRNs, and because it was a state-run psychiatric hospital, we were on a very limited budget, mm-hmm. and our patients were also on very limited budgets. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just eating crappy food and letting leading to obesity and high blood sugar, blah, blah, blah. So I'd come in. I'd try to veer verbally de-escalate them. If I couldn't de-escalate them, call in, psychiatrist, come in, give them a shot. And then they'd go wind down in the corner. And unfortunately for some of these, the um, the side effects, now this was, you know, 15 years ago, were really bad and they'd have like muscle cramping. Um, oh, yes. And Dystonia. so I would come back and, and I would like relax their muscles. I would massage their hands and their feet, the dystonia, um, until they came back. And then obviously they'd be calmed down by then because they didn't have any other choice. Um, but what happened was, is during these interprofessional teams, um, we started going through the medication list and I started noticing a trend that a lot of my my patients, some of them were, were nonverbal, but some of them just had limited ability. And we're talking like some pretty ill people. Like we had lots of pedophiles. We had a couple of forensic cases of murderers, that sort of thing. Um, what I was noticing a trend in their medication and I didn't know anything about medicine. And I asked our pharmacist, I was like, Letitia, like, what's what would happen if somebody didn't take their thyroid medication? Because I knew that my, you know, my patients were limited in their cognitive ability, but they weren't stupid. And so they would cheek their medications or not take them uh, because of the side effects. And so I went to the pharmacist and I said, Letitia, uh, what would happen if somebody didn't take their thyroid medication? Well, they become lethargic or they can become aggressive. Um, oh, that's interesting. And then over time, I started realizing that a lot of my patients also had type 2 diabetes. Well, that's interesting because I know they're not taking their Haldol. What happens if they don't take their insulin? Oh, well, they could look catatonic or they could go the opposite way and they could go really aggressive. And I thought, holy crap, this whole time I've been seeing these patients through my tiny little psych lens. We were doing the right thing by doing the team the team meetings every morning. Thank God we didn't kill anybody, Todd. Like what was happening was is we were I, – I would see them – through my psych lens, not realizing it was their thyroid medication. Their mm-hmm. thyroid was off mm-hmm. or their diabetes, their their sugars were wacky. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was it was just like a ridiculously like lightning bolt aha moment. Oh my God, we're, we're doing the right, like talk on the talk, but we're not walking the walk. Like we weren't really talking about these patients in an interdisciplinary team. Yeah. Again, we're glad we didn't kill each other or kill anybody. But we, I mean, it was really, it was just kind of an aha moment. And so what happened was, is going back to the conversation we had in the last session about like being able to screw up and then learn from it, is what it did, you know, after we all like were kicking ourselves, we're like, it started to open up conversation. And so I would go to the pharmacist and I'd be like, and, and at the time before the age of the internet, they had these giant white Bibles with, that was their pill Bible, right? So I would go to the pharmacist and I'd be like, what does this thyroid medication look like? And oh, this is a big pink pill. And one of the things that I loved, loved, loved about my patients were they were horrible liars. So I'd go back on the unit and I'd, I'll name this patient, Carrie. I'd say, Miss Carrie, did you take your little pink pill this morning? She'd say, no, Miss Dawn, I didn't take my little pink pill. So I realized that over time, what we were doing is I was I was treating them in my psychotropic lens, but in reality, it wasn't psychos- psychosis at all. Mm-mm. It was their insulin or their thyroid. Well, that's the that's the thing about having good psychiatrists that understand um, integrated uh, mental, physical, spiritual health, yeah. because uh, human being, and this is very osteopathic. We we're not. Uh, boxed separate boxes of things. We're an integrative whole 
of all things. And so, you know, the best psychiatrists I know are people who say, hey, you know, this may not be a psychiatric issue. This may be a metabolic physiologic issue that is not dealt with. Mm -hmm. We need to look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we do. We screen thyroids. We screen uh, for diabetes. We screen for all that stuff because, and one of the first things you do when someone's psychotic and you have no explanation for it, not just like sort of weird break that maybe is cyclical for them they know about, but otherwise are healthy, mm -hmm. is you stop all their meds. And you say, okay, what's absolutely necessary? Well, I got to get their diabetes on board, get their thyroid on board, control their high blood pressure, maybe give them one antipsychotic that's at a baseline. Let's see where we're at. Mm -hmm. Because it gets very confusing. And psychopharmacology is not for the faint of heart. And they're very complicated medications. And so it can lead you down a rabbit hole. And yeah. it could be something really simple like a thyroid. Yeah. So you just start and say, what's, what, what are we working at? And so, yeah, you, you learn. A, I, I was introduced to that through other people's wisdom, including your own. But, but I didn't have to experience that because I was taught that by good psychiatrists and by good uh, psychiatric hospitalists. Yeah, it's challenging. We gotta start, we, that's a good one, I'm gonna keep that. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks uh, at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Not the Flatland University with a similar name, no, we are the Ohio University, the oldest university in the western United States. 1804 is our founding, Cutler Hall is right up on the hill, it's a beautiful building and if you're ever in lovely Athens for any reason you should come see um, Cutler Hall on the green and uh, we have one of the prettiest campuses. Um, in the country to live and work on, uh, notwithstanding the regional campuses of Dublin and Cleveland, but the mother campus of Athens is a big PhD granting university like you'd think of Harvard or Yale um, or any of the Eastern universities. I think we're Ivy League in every respect and better than they are. And today I'm going to continue um, discussing uh, psychology with my colleague and uh, my sort of boss for the unit that I'm in now, our semester, our second years, uh, Don Graham, PhD in psychology. And Don, I'm glad you decided to stick around. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So we were just talking uh, before I, I hit the record button. Actually, I'd hit the record button. I never tell guests I hit the record button because Don was giving me this great vignette. But we were talking about um, how we learn from our experiences in medicine that we think we know things, and then suddenly our eyes are open to some very basic, simple things. We were talking about how psychiatric patients are also patients, and some of them have problems that make them not behave right that have nothing to do with mental illness, so diabetes and thyroid. And so that is a beautiful segue into, we get new medical students, Don, do you find that they know anything about psychology when they show up and its implications and ramifications for patient care? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's a loaded question too. I think they- I think, All my questions are loaded. I think they- <laughs> I think they- I think they have a cursory idea or a surfacey idea of psychology, and and I think some of our or some of our students um, come in with a little bit of a background on psychology, but I think that 
at least our first years when they first come in, they think it as as a separate thing. And I think one of the cool things about working in an osteopathic school is that part of our job as teachers is to integrate those things. Um, and over time, they learn kind of what we had talked about in the last segment. We learned that social science is not separate from, but part of patient care and part of primary care. Yeah. Are we good at it? Do we do a good job? You think we do enough, a good enough job in getting students to understand that relationship? Do a good job. I think we could do a better job. How? Um, what are we doing wrong? Well, I think one of the things that we're doing wrong, or I think that's going to happen, that we're doing right, that's going to get better over time. That's what we call positive reframe. In the yeah, shop. I like that, but I'm just a blunt I know. old soldier. I just like to I say know. things that are just straight up. That's okay. So okay. so what we're doing wrong. You should, you should talk to my, my VA psychologist. <laughs> he loves talking to me. I love VA psychologist. He's a pretty good one. He helped get my my uh, hypervigilance down to a manageable level. That's awesome. See, yeah. shrinks shrinks can be really good allies. Yeah, they can be fun. Well, the, uh, I don't know. We call psychiatrists shrinks. Are psychologists shrinks? We call ourselves shrinks too. Do you I really? I don't know. Yeah. You don't think of that as a pejorative? No. I think of it as a term of endearment, but I'm not sure it's always taken that way. Yeah, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. I was told last week I'm not allowed to call PAs and nurse practitioners mid-levels anymore because they say it's demeaning. Oh, I don't think it's demeaning. In the military, that's what we refer to. Like if we say, if I say a mid-level provider, then people automatically know a nurse practitioner or a PA right. versus a, a physician yeah. versus a, a medic. Well, people call you guys as physicians. They call you clinicians and don't call me clinicians, but it doesn't really offend me. But you are Because I know I'm a clinician. I am, but I know. I know that. I don't have to prove that. Yeah. So, so, they're, so I don't know. So, okay. So from, from someone who's affirming. Uh -huh. In the in the vein of Mister Rogers, because <laughs> uh, I do have my Mister Mister Rogers bobblehead, and I I just had a re review, and I told my department chair that that's my goal is to be perceived as the Mister Rogers of OUHcom. Okay, because well, Mister Rogers I... affirmed everybody. He did, right? He did. He's the best guy He's on the a, planet he for was that. A wonderful human. What do you, what are we doing? What are we gonna? What are we doing? Okay, that we can get better at. There you go. Good. Yeah. I don't want to be a psychologist. So, you have to say too many words. I think we're working on it. I think I think part of the new curriculum. Yeah, but we can't spell the words that we use. We just That's use good. them. Um, <laughs> part of the new curriculum is really integrating social sciences into medical practice. Yeah. And um, and we mentioned this earlier. Like when you deal with patients and you work with patients, again, it's it's an honorable profession. Um, no matter what healthcare profession you work with, when somebody lets you into their life. Um, the, the art of medicine, I think, involves social science. And I think the more that we can embed social science, communication, um, learning, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, motivational interviewing to get people to open up, it helps budding physicians to really learn how to develop relationships with their patients, which leads to trust. Mm -hmm. Trust leads to more relationship. More relationship, I would argue, means to leads to better health. And so what what we need to do better at is more fully integrating the social sciences into our new curriculum, and I think we've got an excellent start. Um, but I think we, I think we, there's some room to grow. Do you think that doctors have difficult have difficulty with personal relationships, and do you think that reflects upon how they then look at uh, the important aspects of patient care? Oh wow, um, I don't think I would. I wouldn't say a statement that general. Okay, I would say that due to the nature of the really difficult profession that you have and that our students have in the career, um, that out of necessity, people who work with high need, high volume populations have to learn how to separate themselves emotionally so that they could get to the job at hand. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we could do a better job with doing is helping physicians and budding physicians to understand that 
even if you displace those negative emotions, at some point in time, they're going to come back. And how do you deal with them? And how do you deal with them with them in an adaptive way or in a healthy coping way? Mm -hmm. um, do you have you ever watched the show This Is Us? Mm -mm. I was going to say this is a my wife got my, okay. There's an old saying: the man is the head, the wife is the neck. So my neck turned my head to something the other last week, and which which basically means that men think they're in charge. They're not really in charge because their wives are telling them where to look anyway all the time. So my wife said, "You need to watch this." You, you, she didn't say that. It wasn't a request or or a, an admonition. It was you will. So I remember that. It was very much a command. You will watch this show with me. So we've been watching this show called This Is Us. Uh -huh. And one of the th things that happened, I really encourage you to watch the first episode on Hulu, if you can do it, is um, the whole story centers around a family. But these babies are being born, triplets, as a matter of fact. And the relationship of the obstetrician that cares for the mom, who is not her normal obstetrician, mm -hmm. I think was exemplary of how doctors are taught to behave. This doctor who, there's a backstory later on that talks about his backstory, but the, but the authority projects in the patient relationship of, you are freaking out. I'm gonna step in there, take control emotionally so that you don't have to anymore, and tell you, I have got this. It was brilliantly done. Whoever advised that show knew exactly what physicians are trained to do. But it comes at a bit of a cost because there's an asymmetry to the relationship, and it makes it difficult for the physician to truly be friendly with patients on a peer level. There's always that kind of barrier there. And so I guess that's that's why I was asking that question. I also wonder if we don't select for Myers-Briggs introverts. If we looked at that, if we, no one will give me that data. I know we give them the test. I'd love to see what the cross-section class looks if it's a lot of I's or E's. Mm -hmm. I want to know which one it is. I's or E's. I'll bet you it's a whole predominance of I's. Do you think, based oh. upon your experience, maybe you don't like Myers-Briggs, but do you think we select for a lot of introverts? Uh, actually, I was thinking the opposite. You I'm think on the, so? On the admissions committee and as an ENFP myself. I'm uh, an INTJ. I think, I think we, are you? Can't you tell? You're an E. I'm an I. What? Absolutely. This is a coping mechanism. Oh. I don't like people. So you're going to be tired at the end of this. Uh, I typically am pretty worn out. But I enjoy it so much because it allows me to be with people in a way that I can handle. I'm not on the spectrum, but I just, I like machines better than people. Huh. It's been a challenge. I would have never guessed that about you. Well, it's a coping mechanism. Cool. Well, I'd, rather, I'd rather be alone by myself or with my dog. No. No. I like dogs. Me too. Keep going. Um, we'll talk about dogs later. Well, you know, I think ease might be, I was going to say that we have more ease, um, but I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, because ease are easier to spot as people, 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 people. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty with ease, though, is sometimes they, they can turn on the charm when they don't mean it. Um, mm. or be kind of a, a chameleon, a social chameleon, which, which can be, can work for, for good or evil. Um, but I would say, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know then. I don't know who are you I'll bet you find out. I, I could ask. Cause I know we give them the Myers-Briggs so they I can take it voluntarily. Shriner. You could ask them. It'd be interesting to see because that has implications about how people value, uh, social interaction. Mm-hmm. And also maybe how receptive they are to the idea of people as psychological beings, not beings that may benefit from psychiatry, right? Yeah. How do we do that, Dawn? I mean, you've been here for some time now. How have you changed as an educator to try to, I mean, from what you saw, to emphasize the importance of students becoming somewhat facile about the cognitive behavioral elements of patient care and appreciating that? 
Yeah. Because it's all too easy. People want to stick a knife in things and they want to give people a pill. A lot of these problems aren't pills, right? No, most of them aren't. Right? You can't, yeah. changing someone's thinking doesn't happen with it. There's no pill that says change thinking, right? Yeah. No, and it's it's not easy. I mean, taking a pill is easy and people want immediate fix. And, and now we're living in the society, and I won't go on a rampage, but where, you know, our phone is stuck on our faces all the time mm -hmm. and things are changing, changing, changing. People are losing patience. And so people are losing patience with the outside and they're losing patience with their insides. I don't, not to get too philosophical about no, it's it. Important. But, but really, I think people, um, you know, doing psychotherapy and doing is really hard work. And we like to think that we don't have time to take care of ourselves like that. And I would argue the opposite. I would argue that we don't not have time, um, especially if you're going to be a healthcare practitioner. Like if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of your patients for a long time very well, for very long. Um, and so kind of back to the what, what the psych term is displacement. But, you know, if you're dealing with something, we worked with a, with a local health organization and one of the, we worked with um, trauma-informed care and we taught mm -hmm. vicarious trauma and burnout among healthcare practitioners. And we treated not only our, our DOs and our MDs and our nurse practitioners, but also the frontline billing staff um, in Southeast mm -hmm. Appalachian, Ohio. What is it like to be a billing person where you're asking money from people that don't have it all day long? What is yeah. it like to be an ultrasound tech and understand if a baby's not moving but can't make the diagnosis until the doctor comes in and the doctor's, you know, maybe delivering a baby in an hour behind and you're sitting there with the patients and the patient's family with this knowledge but you can't give it away. So there's, I mean, there's all sorts of nuances to to these problems that, that our healthcare practitioners are facing. And I think that one of the cool opportunities that we have in medical education is flipping this classroom to provide, kind of going back to your extrovert introvert question, providing time and space for the students to think about these things. Um, you know, the extroverts, and I'm an extrovert, like it's verbal diarrhea all over the, over the place. I will, I will talk through six different scenarios and end up with one eventually. Whereas my introvert friends, I so much appreciate because they lay back, they think about it, and then they come out with just one golden pearl. And, mm. and it's beautiful. So I think that there's room for all sorts of people in healthcare. And I think that by flipping this classroom idea with the new curriculum, we give space and time um, thanks to my educator friends who've taught me how to do this better and how to be a better teacher, you know, like uh, the think, pair, share, like have them think about something in their head, write it down, share it with somebody, bounce ideas off, and then share with the larger classroom so that you're giving the introverts a little bit of time to think without putting them on command mm -hmm. and putting them in front of people. And so I guess this wasn't your question, but I'll answer this question is, I mean, I think that their healthcare is changing so drastically and it's so diverse that I think that there's room for all personalities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, go to an ER, your former ER doc, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in ER docs have a recovering ER, a position. Recovering ER yeah. position. Hi, Todd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like going to 12-step meeting. <laughs> actually, you, you you actually run into ER doctors that have quit doing ER medicine. Mm -hmm. and it is like a 12-step meeting. You just start going, you look at each other, you have a collective like, oh, thank God, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, and I worry about students who tell me they want to be ER doctors because I have, I'm like, okay, that's great. I have a backup plan for it because in 13 years, you're burned out. You can't take it anymore. Yeah. 
So keep going. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't talk about that. Well, no, I, I think it's important to have options. And I think yeah. it's important that we're teaching our students to have options. I mean, I don't see patients right now and I can't do it 24-7 anymore because it burns me out because I'm very sensitive and I take all, all those stories. Mm. And, and so I think the cool thing about medicine and cool thing about psych is that you can balance those needs and wants. You can, you can balance your need for clinical care with teaching so that you're not just bogged down by seeing the worst of humans, but you can see the best of humans too. And I think that teaching our students to try to have that balance and finding it for themselves, mm -hmm. I think um, selfishly will behoove me when I'm an old lady and they're pushing me around in my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You know, I want balanced healthcare providers. I want, I want a balanced society. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to open this, this next series of thought uh, questions and stuff uh, with this 20 years ago. I noticed this trend where family doctors started giving out Ritalin, started giving out um, methamphetamine, dextramphetamine. They, they started giving out uh, the SSRIs like candy. Mm -hmm. And the undergraduate psych major in me kept saying, did you do any testing on them? Did you do any anything that assessed and got a real diagnosis? Or did you just hear a couple words, said they're depressed, and threw them on an SSRI because it's just a shotgun? Um, and now we live in an age where we have a lot of young people, and I'll tell you where this becomes a real issue uh, because I'm an aerospace medicine guy, is now we have the children that were that was done to who are now in their 20s trying to be professional pilots, but because they are on stimulants as kids and given a diagnosis by a family doctor of ADHD mm -hmm. without being formally tested with, psycho uh, with, psycho with psychological instruments mm -hmm. to get an accurate diagnosis, that they... Um, go through this incredibly expensive process to be to be evaluated for whether or not they ever had ADHD in general versus oh well they're just active kids yeah. you know and so th that's that hopefully sets a foundation for this question what are you doing as an educator to teach enough psychology enough um enough of a, a basis to make a call of the of a of the competent generalist, the competent family doctor versus this is too much, you really need some help and you need to go talk to a psychologist and figure out these things before you write make a recommendation or prescribe something. What what are we doing in preclinical education to create that? And I got a, I got some follow-up questions about that about how much of a psychologist do we want our medical students to be versus how much do we want them to say, uh, I don't touch that, I go to the psychologist. Yeah, yeah, that that's a that's a tricky question and a slippery slope. I'm happy to say that um, uh, our my our colleague, Dr. Fran Wims, in um, here in family medicine, that's her specialization, ADD, and she did a postdoc at at Seattle Children's Hospital, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we've strategically put her in the curriculum to talk about just those sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, kind of when to refer, when to when you can hold your own. Um, I do know in my former life, I I used to run a maternal child health grant in rural Ohio. And um, one of the cool things that we got to do, um, not my idea, I can't take credit for it, but one of the things that we implemented was um, the integration of behavioral health and primary care. And so one of our local docs here in this region was what we would call developmentally kind of slow to warm up. Like he was a self-standing practitioner. He's fantastic family doc, um, leans more, a little bit towards pediatrics too. So we had a younger population. Uh, he didn't want anything to do with behavioral health. Um, the a local behavioral health provider rented space from his uh, office, and he learned that 
in, in, in extreme cases where he felt like he was out of his scope of competency, but he didn't know, he didn't know whether or not, and oftentimes they don't because of either transportation issues down here, or financial issues or whatever, that if he referred to a psychologist, first of all, the stigma is ridiculous. I don't want to be called crazy. I'm not taking my kid to no shrink. Um, promise I'll get back to your answer. Um, no, you're doing great. But, but really like, um, you know, transportation issues, insurance issues, whatever, he could refer to the psychologist, but chances are, especially in this region, you're not going to get in for six months. You oh, know, it's very hard to find Three one. to six months. And yeah. the paperwork just to get into a community mental health center is like a, is like writing a book. Um, but what he did, and it, it actually ended up working out beautifully, which was, it was so cool to see this happen, was the behavioral health people literally set up shop and is upstairs. And so what would happen is he would have like, and this is a true story, he had a little kiddo who was kind of parasuicidal. Kid was like 13. Uh, parasuicidal. And Doc was a little on the edge of his competency levels. Like he was managing the kid's meds, yeah. but he wasn't sure whether or not. Now in a private practice, which is, I mean, that's those days are kind of slowly diminishing. But in his private practice, what would have happened typically is if the kid was parasuicidal, um, he would have had to call the ambulance or he would have had to call the cops. He would have to clear out his schedule for the rest of the day. The office manager would have had to reschedule all these, the rest of the 30 patients he had to see. But because the behavioral health person who was um, well-versed in ADD and was a, a social worker by training was literally upstairs, he called her. She came downstairs. She took the kiddo and his family into another room, did a triage, got him into respite care, made sure his meds were back in order, and the referral system was seamless, and he was sold. Yeah. Not only that, but we didn't wreck this kid because nobody called the cops on him in mm -hmm. front of a group of 30 people in the waiting room. Um, so, so, you know, I think that in order to teach our students their levels of competencies, I think, number one, we have to have somebody who knows what they're talking about who specialized in the field, like Dr. Wims, um, and, and have our students not be afraid to refer out. Like we can't know everything. And as, as future physicians, you know, the ability to kind of like, and I, we talked about this in the last segment, like you've got to know a lot about a lot mm -hmm. and you don't have to know everything about everything. And really we work better in teams when if you are outside the scope of competency or you are dealing with those tricky situations, you need to know who in the community you can refer to. Um, one of the things that we talk about with my students in our small group is, you know, I think any physician or clinician, psychologist, worth, worth their weight in salt, has the duty for, for to explain to patients what happens when you do certain diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if somebody comes into me and I, you know, they're having an adjustment disorder with heightened anxiety, or maybe they had a single psychotic episode, I know as a as a clinician not to put psychosis on their medical record because it's going to follow them everywhere, and and it's it's likely to be discriminated. They're likely to be discriminated against. So I had to learn the ICD-10 codes in a different way, so I could say, okay, so not. I mean, still being honest and giving them the truthful codes, but saying if I say this, this what could happen. What do you want to do? And really letting the patient drive the bus. Mm. Um, you know, patient-centered medical care really is patient-centered medical care, and not not allowing the patient to diagnose for you. Um, obviously, the physician is the one that went to medical school. Um, but really, as a clinician, um, having the responsibility, the moral responsibility to explain to your patients, these are my options. This is what happens with this. If this if this is the route we go, this is the, this is what happens. If this is the route you go. And, and really working together to make sure that you got that best plan of care. Going back to, if, if you know, if I'm going to diagnose a pilot, I need to know 
I need to know what the implications are of that. Well, well the problem is they're diagnosing the pilot, you know, 12, 15 years before they become a pilot. They're diagnosing them at 10 and they, they don't even know. Yeah, right. Yeah. This goes to back to a principle. You have doctors, some of whom are diagnosis collectors. Like they, they really feel that it's critical that they have the diagnosis so they can put it in their little, their little bag of tricks and say, I diagnosed that once or I diagnosed that again. I tend to be someone that diagnoses via symptoms mm -hmm. because there's lots of things that can cause similar symptoms. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things that can give you the appearance of psychosis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That aren't psychosis. Yep. And so I just say confused, agitated, highly elevated individual, mm -hmm. this is my plan. Right. Those are the facts. Those right. are the facts, right? Because right. that's what I can absolutely right. attest to at right. that moment. Um, and and so I guess that goes back to how do we train our medical students to avoid what you did, which is, or, or, or do what you said you'd like to do, which is write the right words, mm -hmm. especially in behavioral health. Because, for instance, you know the diagnosis of bipolar is contingent on a single episode of mania. Mm -hmm. It does not every other week, and people don't get that, right? Well, they're bipolar, they're up, they're down. They're, no, it could be a person with depressive symptoms has a single episode of mania, and now they're bipolar, right? Well, and it could look like somebody who's just had too much coffee. It could, right? <laughs> you know, they're just like, well, I don't, I don't know want about, to dismiss it. On but, my yeah. biggest coffee day, I never went out and spent my entire life savings on a, on a speedboat, <laughs> right? That's or true. a bass boat, yeah. I guess. But I mean, hey, now I'm waiting for tenure. Promotion, But no, seriously, how do you train that effectively so that students have an appreciation for saying, yeah, it's really important you get that if the student does have ADHD, that you write the right things mm -hmm. to help them get proper care and justify referrals mm -hmm. at the same time not wedging them into a thing where someone down the road 20 years after you even saw them will start saying oh well that's disqualifying and that's going to change the rest of your life right well I think I think you, I think two things I think you need to give the students the resources where they can ask questions to learn these things mm -hmm. and I, I think as educators we have the responsibility to really emphasize that it's okay to not know it's okay to be ambiguous and when all I mean doing the symptoms like you do when you diagnose, if you write down the symptoms, you're not going to get in trouble. Nope. There's no legal problems with that. There's no medical problems with that. This is what the patient said. This is what the patient experienced. And I think the more that we can drive home that rather than work, worrying about labels that could follow somebody 20 years down their the life and change their course. Yeah. Um, I think that's what, I think that's our responsibility as educators. Yeah. We're, I'm, we're a little delayed in doing this, but so uh, another thing that came up, Don, was that last year I had a student, uh, there was a bit of a, a kerfluffle in that one of the other allied health professionals that has a doctorate, is not a physician, um, uh, received some information from a student who's in a medical school that sort of indicated, well, you're not a real doctor, right? Mm -hmm. So for the sake of people listening, mm -hmm. why are psychologists real doctors? Mm -hmm. Um, well, what goes into the building of a psychologist besides the 12 years of student loans? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, I would say that, uh, I would say that it's because we are trained in diagnostic criteria, um, that we are, we are, uh, disease prevention, um, that we're not physicians and also we're clinicians because we do treat people. Um, we do treat patients. Um, we try to teach them healthier lifestyles. We try to teach them certain evidence-based practices and evidence-based therapies um, that we continue to do research, that we continue to read up on research so that we know. I mean, in the last 10 years, neuroscience has exploded. I mean, we're on the cusp of finding the crux of like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. I mean, it's just brain science has just exploded in the last 10 years, particularly. Um, so, I mean, back to your question, we're learning basic diagnostics 
basic diagnostics. Yeah, because yeah. I think that that helps to. Uh, I think that helps to set the expectation of a medical student. I mean, I know a fair amount of orthopedics. I'm not an orthopedist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know how to splint things. I know how to cast on complicated mm-hmm. fractures. So there is a level of, I know how to deal with this much psychology, mm-hmm. but after that, I need the doctor of psychology to take care of this mm-hmm. or any other specialist in right. that field, sure. physical therapist, anybody right. who's doing that, pharmacology. Right. I mean, pharmacologists have doctors of pharmacology for very good reasons. I end up calling the pharmacologist when we deal with very complicated psychiatric meds saying, uh, this is a little confusing. Could it have an interaction with this? Right. So how do you impl- how do you teach that to medical students to understand and develop that appreciation if we're looking at a team-based medicine? By, by the way, historically, doctors have always practiced team-based medicine because what they figured out was the conscientious physicians did. They said, these are my referring people that I know are really good at the various things and mm-hmm. I trust them like I'd send my own family to them. Mm-hmm. That's the team of people that I use. And when I have a patient, oh, you can see me, but you also need to see my friend Joe or Mary. They're really good at this. Mm-hmm. And then we work together. Yeah, we call it different things. They've said medical center home, which has fallen out of favor now. You hear that occasion that that's like some old buzzword. It was the biggest thing for the longest time, and now you don't ever hear about it. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So how do you develop that team based mentality with the appreciation of what the psychologist brings to the table for the general physician for the for the family doctor? That's a great question. I think part of it is being taught by psychologists. Yeah, I do too. Um, I think you know one of my favorite parts of the students is me being able to say, you know what, I'm not a physician. I'm a psychologist by training, and these, this is why it's important. And this is, and it goes back to our other conversation about more of the art than the science, and and using social science as as really part of the art form. So you know, if you are a primary care physician and you want to build a again a, build a trusting relationship with a patient, you need to know how to mend those little tears in a relationship. You need to know how to get somebody to empower themselves and believe in themselves. You need to understand the mechanisms behind motivation or unmotivation when somebody's trying to make major lifestyle choices and changes. Um, if somebody's trying to manage their type 2 diabetes, well, we know for a fact that people with type 2 diabetes have are twice as susceptible to depression, to major depression. Now, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. But all I do know is that if you're seeing a patient and I'm seeing that same patient and they're suffering from type 2 diabetes and you're managing their insulin and I'm managing their depression, chances are they're going to be a little better off than if they were just seeing one of us. Yeah. And this touches on something that I think is important for medical students to understand and practicing physicians. There have been, there's research done. Go to PubMed, just look at compliance among patients. And you're going to find that compliance, full compliance with what we prescribe may approach on a good day, 40% of patients. Like 40% of patients will do what I told you to do when I told you to do it. The rest of them will say, well, I decided to take three days worth of antibiotics and stop. Or I decided to only take the medication twice a day because I didn't like how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And so to me, an appreciation of behavioral health has a direct impact on compliance, mm-hmm. on understanding what human behavior and psychology really are and what they will and won't do, how you get buy-in from patients. Mm-hmm. I think these are really important concepts. And I, I wonder if you have thoughts about that, about teaching a medical student, a physician to understand Again, going back to what you say, social medicine, relationship medicine, understanding what your patients will and won't do, et cetera. Um, how do we teach that effectively for someone who's really focused on the Krebs cycle? Sure. <laughs> well, um, w- there, well, there there are two things that I really emphasize. I don't think we teach this Krebs cycle anymore. Someone told me they pulled it out of curriculum. That it was just, Someone finally determined that no one really cares about the Krebs cycle. It's not in return to wellness as far as I know. I don't so think I don't it's really in return to wellness, is it? <laughs> um, I'm sure there's a physiologist I've offended there somewhere. Anyway. But, 
But no, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways to do it. And I mean, I, I spent a lot of time teaching motivational interviewing and really mm-hmm. motivational interviewing was begun in psychotherapy with um, patients that we saw with addiction. But anybody who's ever been in a close uh, intimate relationship with somebody or anybody who's tried to get a toddler to go to bed uses motivational interviewing to really ask open-ended questions, figuring out what the patient motivation is, um, you know, teaching our students social determinants of health. Um, you know, in southeastern Appalachian, Ohio, this is one of the poorest regions of the of, of Ohio and in the nation for that matter. And so really getting an understanding of where our patients are coming from. So maybe their non-compliance is because they didn't have gas in the car to go to town. Maybe they don't have a dollar for that, that one insulin strip. Insulin strips are a dollar a piece. Mm-hmm. And if you're on a limited income or you don't have gas in your car, you know, your, your patient might not necessarily go to that because it's, it's, it might be shameful. Um, you know, the culture of resilience and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And there's a million reasons why your patient isn't going to be necessarily vulnerable right off with that patient or with that with that physician again going back to building a trusting relationship so i think it's important that as educators we teach students those those i i put in air quotes soft skills mm-hmm. because you're going to have to be able to get to what's important to your patient and if you don't continue to ask why or to ask hey you know i asked this of everybody does do you, do you have enough you know do you need a transportation voucher i got a medical social worker friend that can help you out if you don't or um you know just vouchers for fresh food and vegetables i mean a lot of our a lot of our promising young physicians they don't know what they don't know so they don't think about the fact that not everybody has food in the fridge mm-hmm. or not everybody has gas in their car or not everybody is motivated to buy a dollar test strip when they got to feed three kids that night and so i think one of the ways that that social medicine really is imperative in this new curriculum and no they're not paying me to say this but it really it's really well we it, own it we it, work here we i mean do, it, we've yeah, kind of true. invested <laughs> yeah. the farm in this whole thing like, it's all, all our deal right? it has to work five years of my life yeah yeah of course so, but but really in, in the osteopathic philosophy in the spirit is a well-rounded physician and part of that well-rounded physician is yes you have to know all the basic science of course you do or else you couldn't be a doctor and also, you have to know how to talk to people. You have to know how to build relationships because you want that patient to come back. And if you if they leave with a bad taste in their mouth or they feel like they're being judged, they're gonna they're not only not gonna come back to never be seen again, but they're gonna tell all their friends and family by word of mouth, and then your business is shut down. So you, if you think about it from a business perspective, I mean, there's a there's a selfish component to that too. But to to your to your question, I think social science particularly teaching evidence-based medicine. Um, my colleague, Liz Beverly, teaches how to read journal articles, how to read current research. Totally super, super, super important for physicians to understand how to navigate data, large data sets, small data sets, quantitative data, mixed methods data, qualitative data. Um, it's really important to have that science piece mm-hmm. along with the, with, the, with the medical knowledge that they absolutely have to know. Mm. I think it's a good place to stop the second segment. You going you gonna be have a little more time? Sure. Okay, I'm gonna end the second segment here. I got some things to finish up with uh, Don for the third segment, but I'm gonna make you wait for another week. I want to thank Don Graham for sharing her thoughts about social medicine and behavioral health from the psychologist's perspective. And again, I ask you all to uh, go ahead and make comments or send feedback to us at Rotations. We want to hear what you want to hear about. Um, We try to keep things mixed up and and interesting. And so if we're not achieving that, uh, please give us some feedback. And with that, I'll bid you adieu. And hopefully you'll join us in a week for the next episode of Rotations.
Rotations is the periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, the state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema or by contacting me, Todd Fredericks, T.R. Fredericks, at MeWe. If you comment, please be nice. I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. And finally, I would always acknowledge that Rotations was founded and created by Nisarg Bakshi, Brian Plough, and Todd Fredericks, all of whom have various and intermittent input in the production of Rotations. And we ask always that you consider we want it to be the best product that we can give to you. So please tweet, uh, retweet us, post us on your favorite social media platform, send us feedback, ask people to participate in Rotations. We would be grateful for that. It will improve our content and make it a better experience for you. Take care.